Hey, welcome to Wayfair. This is Aaron. This season, we're listening to several writers in our writers group at Central. From personal narratives to short stories and poetry, we've got a bit of everything. Each week, we'll hear from a writer, and we'll talk with them a little bit about their inspiration and their process. Now, this is going to be our last week for the season, but don't cry just yet. Because this week, we're talking with Kara Kilpatrick. Kara is in training as a psychiatrist right now. She's working primarily with adolescents. She's an ordained Presbyterian minister who's also worked as a chaplain, and somehow she manages to find time to play the hammered dulcimer and mandolin and probably some other things that I'm forgetting as well. She and Gino have been at Central for several years now, and we are so thrilled to have her as part of our writer's workshop. As you'll see in this piece that Kara adapted from one of her sermons, she's a master at weaving together intellect and emotion. Her narratives are thoughtful and precise, yet still vibrant and alive, giving us a chance to think and feel differently than we might have before we listened. So just a note before we begin, Kara's story is a reimagining of Jesus' anointing in the Gospel of Luke, and that story involves a woman who's described as living a sinful life. Kara unpacks this reputation, and while there's nothing explicit in the slightest, if you're listening with kids, you may want to preview a little bit to see what questions you may need to answer later. So, here's Kara. This content is not completely appropriate, and just because of subject matter more than um, anything else. Because So I took this. I didn't take it from the kind of cleaned-up John version where they're visiting Lazarus, and oh, yeah. it's, it's from the Luke version, and you, can, you know how Luke is with his social justice type of things right, yeah, and these yeah. kind of things. And so you have Simon, a Pharisee, and then kind of this unnamed, possibly wanton type of woman. At least that's how it's right. kind of portrayed. Right, you know, right yeah. Uh, portrayed to us. So um, I initially, I called this initially a tale of two sinners. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So that was the initial title yeah. for it. And what I did, because it was preached, it, it was just the sermon for whatever day it was that I preached it, um, I had a prop, I had a scarf, and I would cover my head or do different things with the scarf to kind of embody the three characters, which was Jesus, the oh, yeah. uh, Pharisee, and the woman. And when I read through it, I was like, wow, this just probably won't work for a podcast at all because I'm not going to do different voices necessarily, right? I mean, you can. We're not, we're not opposed to voices, yeah. you know. <laughs> but I just don't, I don't do voices well, right? So I said, well, the, the heart of this story is about the woman anyway, So for me. Yeah. And so I just revamped it to where it's all from the woman's perspective. Oh, yeah. Okay, great, yeah. And so it's kind of, yeah, her experience right. and kind of her backstory. And um, so the, the other thing, you kind of talk about what's writing inspiration, you know, what's the inspiration for the writing, what have you. And the other thing that I realized kind of growing up in maybe a more conservative church that read a lot of scripture like I had heard the stories a lot, but heard them in a very specific kind of way. And then I also felt like when people got up to read scripture, 
it was just, and Jesus said, you will have life and have it abundantly. And, you know, you're wondering if, (laughs) did Jesus actually say it that way? It just kind of, and just recognizing that there's a lot of context around the stories that we get and very, you know, shortened versions throughout the Gospels, right? Yeah. Um, and so for a period of time when I did my preaching and things like that, and to some, to some extent I still do, I kind of make up the story around what's happening yeah. um, at, at the time. And I used to feel like maybe I wasn't a very good Christian because I did that. <laughs> like I wasn't being very true to the text, right? Yeah. Um, because I was just making up some story that I had no idea if it was really a true story or not. And then um, somebody was doing a biblical, he was a biblical scholar at a local college around East Tennessee when we were in Johnson City, came in and did a Sunday school class. And he said, well, it used to be standard practice for people to kind of create the stories around the story that was had been written down. And oh, so, really? Yeah. Yeah. And um, so then I was like, oh, well, this has been done for centuries, right? And yeah. I guess if you, I don't know, maybe somewhere in the back of my head, I remember something about learning how the church fathers interpreted things and what they said about the scriptures, that um, they seemed to hold them a little more loosely than mm. we do in our scientific age of, you know, we have the facts and we have to drill down and know everything about the, the facts right. and get it right. Uh, and so right. Historically accurate. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It does strip some of the, I mean, the, the imagination, the story behind it mm-hmm. is what's so, so, so beautiful, you know, mm-hmm. communicates the, the real heart of what's there. So I, I love it. I'm up for it. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, good. Yeah. Well, good. So we'll, um, I'll just read it. Yeah. We'll see yeah. what happens. Sounds yeah. good. Let's do it. I'll see if all this. Simon, that old viper, is at it again. He stopped by the brothel this week asking me to help him with some upstart from Nazareth. Seemingly, Simon invited that young man for an elaborate dinner with him and all the Jewish elite of the town. His plan consists of shaming him in a multitude of ways. My part is simply to be who I am, the madam of the town who gives orphaned, divorced, and widowed women the opportunity to make some kind of living when all the so-called proper folk turn their eyes away from these women's needs. He wants me to come into the gathering, professing to want some kind of healing, to draw close to this man and touch him. Simon is providing some proper clothing for me, lest my normal dress reveal my profession, and he's instructed me to look as plain as possible. Yuck. Simon said he's trying to test the Nazarene to see if he is truly a prophet, but regardless, my presence and my touch will shame and sully him. At least that's how Simon sees it. It's how everyone in town sees it. And by it, I mean me. I've lived here my whole life, but I've always felt like a pawn. 
When widowed by my Roman father, my mother sold me to a brutal and abusive man, who in turn sold me by the hour. God is protecting us, she told me. If this was God's protection, I didn't need it. I hated being used, being traded between men, catering to their lust, then watching them enter and exit the synagogue every day. I grew to hate God and all the snide teachers of the law that paraded by in their fringed purple robes, filled with what they called righteous indignation, quoting the commandments aloud. I despised them because they rebuked my mother for marrying a Roman, then refused to help her when she was widowed and asked them for aid. They are the reason why I am who I am. God is the reason why I am who I am. And although they curse me for my sinful ways, they will not destroy me. That man to whom I was sold was eventually killed. By that time, Simon had shaped the town to his ideals by his ruthless religious and political positioning. One thing my religious upbringing taught me was to ask for personally identifiable objects from the men I serviced. When Simon came to shut us down, I showed him a tunic from his son, and we struck a deal. I could keep the brothel and run it, but I had to keep the identities of the patrons to myself until Simon needed leverage. This arrangement worked for me and for him. I could make my situation work for my interest and for those women who found themselves poor, homeless, and without a place in the world. And Simon could keep his hands clean while choosing whom to slander and shame. Yes, I again was a pawn, but a pawn with my own piece of the world staked out. Since our meeting, however, I've been hearing whispers everywhere about this Nazarene. He's a carpenter turned healer, and he has some grubby band of men who travel with him. I feel a little sorry for him. With Simon against him, he can't outsmart him. What does a carpenter know about the law compared to a Pharisee? Then Simon personifies cunningness. The rumor going around says that Simon has arranged it so this Nazarene will come to the dinner late. He will have the lowest station at the table, will have anointing oil for his head and water, anointing oil for his head and water for his feet withheld. And then I will be there waiting in the wings. Yet with all of this commotion about him coming here, honestly, I've been a bit afraid. Simon promised that nothing will happen to me, that the other guests of any power know what to expect, but I've learned to trust no one. I keep a jar of perfume, the best and the purest I have found, hidden away in case of emergencies. I plan to bring it with me tonight so I can make an escape if needed. Hmm, the street chatter just escalated. A throng is surrounding this group of strangers. That's odd. Why are my women running out of the brothel? They know better than to do that. It could be trouble for all of us. This better be good. I remember one night, as a younger girl, I left our little home and walked to the hill of Moray. I had a secret place where the evergreens gave way to soft grass and a large flat rock. I would lay on the rock and let the sky stretch out before me. I imagined each star was a candle lit in all the houses that made up heaven. Their number and expanse gave me comfort 
and on that night particularly, I felt assured that if I were good enough, one of those houses would be set aside for my mother and me. I had forgotten that feeling until I looked into his eyes, and all the innocence of my childhood came flooding back to my memory. I remember my prayers to God, begging for a salvation from my poverty and the difficult life it brought. I remember asking for a sign from God, something that would let me know he was hearing me. I remember my desire to do good and be good. That night and those prayers had faded as the abuse continued. I had not received any sign from God. My mother was long dead. I had saved myself from my poverty by using whatever I had to get by. Until now, I had gotten my own home on earth where it had mattered, not in some place in the sky. God had not done anything for me, so I didn't do anything for him. In fact, I had tried to break all the commandments, tried to call down the fury of God, and still nothing. God didn't care about me. But his eyes. I felt the promise of my childhood resurrected as I looked into his eyes. I was calling all my women to me, chastising them for running into the street. They said, but it's him, madam, it's him. I told them I didn't care who it was, I didn't know who this him was, and that they better get back inside before we were all carted off by those do-gooders who didn't want us here in the first place. Then I recognized it was quiet, and a gulf had formed. My women and I stood together in the street, and all the other people created this line facing toward us. Then this man stepped out and stood in the gulf, and he looked directly at me. He had no shame on his face, no condemnation, no anger, no revilement. Instead, he looked questioningly compassionate, as if he didn't understand my fear or why I would so persistently tell my women that we needed to hide. His eyes were an invitation to be in the world. Then I heard my voice inside my head, but somehow it was his voice telling me that I was not alone and I could smell the scent of the trees on the hill of Moray. The memory flashed across my mind and then the crushing anger and guilt of my life. I thought, but I am alone. It was a fleeting moment, and I found him walking away before I had a chance to do anything. God, how dare you leave me again. I got the women inside, the crowds went away with a stranger, and I prepared myself for the evening's work. I hate these clothes, the plainness of my face without the color, without the bangles. None of this fits me, but I can at least cross town without the usual glares. The afternoon's encounter continues to play inside my head. How stupid I was to even imagine that God might be speaking to me. God doesn't care one whit for me, nor I for him. He never gave me anything, a sign, some protection, or care from the synagogue, nothing. So I am not going to give him a second thought. I have to look out for myself, do my own work, to make my own money, to provide for myself. I still feel awful about this poor Nazarene, though, but Simon is requiring it. I seem to have gotten here in time. Everyone seems to be seated except one, but it's hard to tell with this curtain. Okay, 
Everything is ready. I just have to go in with some theatrics and make my way toward him. Oh, teacher, help me, I cry out as I throw my arm over my forehead, tilting my head up and closing my eyes as I move closer. I have this pain. I look briefly in his direction. Is that right here? My cry became a question as those same eyes from earlier met mine, ones that now seem to say, I've been waiting for you to arrive. I'm so glad to see you. He is the one I am to break. How can I break him when seeing him breaks me? Oh, precious man, whoever you may be, you are my sign from God. Forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. May my tears cleanse your feet and my soul. You will redeem me. I know it now. I believe you will not leave me alone. I believe you will give me life. I believe you are worthy of anything, of everything. Here, here is this perfume. My treasure is nothing compared to your grace. Even so, may this be the beginning of a life of gratitude to you and for you. May this anointing be your first. May it be the first blessing of endless eternal blessings. May you be honored and praised above all. May you, for you have seen me in the night and call me into the light. My thoughts stopped with his voice. Simon, I have something to say to you. Say it, teacher. I felt it first in my stomach, that wretched burning feeling I felt as a child each time a, man, a new man came into the house. Then my heart, my chest heaving uncontrollably, then the pounding in my head. This would not end well. He continued. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed two years worth of wages and the other two months. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered. The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. I was paralyzed at this point. I had no way out. The perfume was gone. The Nazarene was challenging Simon. I had not followed the script. Then the man's voice was louder, and I looked up. Those eyes, that compassion. I felt a peace fall upon and within me, a stream, if you will, running through me. I was utterly broken, a space I never knew existed open wide, yet peace lived there. Still looking at me, he said, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. He smiled at me. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loves much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. He reached toward me and took my hand. Your sins are forgiven. I heard a clamor all around me, but I was transfixed. I could not leave his gaze. Your faith has saved you. 
This voice was not in my head, but out loud for all to hear. I had not made it up before. Oh, precious man, you have loved me all these years despite my hatred towards you. You have renewed my life and bonded me to God forever. He placed his feet on the floor and helped me up. Walking me beyond the curtain, we entered the night, stars glistening above. Go in peace, he said. And for the first time, I realized I could. That is beautiful. Mm. I don't know what it was like before it was totally first person from her perspective, but it was a wonderful journey in her head the whole time. It was beautiful. Mm. I love the backstory that you created for her. And how the interaction with Jesus um, was very, there wasn't a lot of time there necessarily with Jesus. A lot happened. We really get this sense of her internal struggle throughout. The, I had not thought about the depth of the Lucan passage and all that is, all that is in there with it before, you know, um, and how, how different it is from the passage in, in John, so much so. Um. Yeah. I guess in thinking about her, the feminist in me, you know, can sometimes find it maybe a little, a little offensive how quickly the women in these passages are kind of mm-hmm. labeled, you know, and. I mean, honestly, uh, in that day and time, how many options did women have, right? Um, And a lot of times people will try to kind of bring that out, like with the woman at the well, you know. (laughs) Right, yeah. Um, and, And just talk about maybe some of the more complicating factors. But um, I think... It's unfortunate, but a lot of women who are in difficult circumstances, whatever those may be, can can end up in places like kind of how I had her end up, right? Yeah. Um, and while it's while it's a made up story it's probably a lot more common that than I ever realized. And, um, there, there's still so much that goes on with human trafficking even now that, um, and that's a little off topic maybe from the story. It, It is kind of interesting to me, kind of going back to something I heard you say about how quickly everything kind of unfolds. But I think sometimes our experience with God is that quick. Hmm. You know, it is that um, 
there is there is something that happens and it's like whoa I've suddenly I think about something completely in a different way or um I've really never thought that that was an issue in my life and then all of a sudden wow it is now Mm. yeah yeah (laughs) conviction you know yeah (laughs) type of things and so and that's why I, I wanted a little bit of them interacting before she is just there with the perfume, the yeah. appointment, you know. Um, where, right. where does this woman just, like, show up, you yeah. know? And how, how does she get invited to, like, this nice dinner with these respectable people or you know is is everything just kind of out in the open and so she can just arrive yeah 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 (laughs) oh i love the conceit of it and now i won't ever think of this as happening any other way (laughs) (laughs) even even though i know it's your fiction like it totally makes sense i totally Uh buy it all and i'm i'm in with it and i think okay that's how it really went down so uh i it feels it, it feels like that makes more sense than 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 any other way that you could suggest that this happens. You know, uh, it really does. And I love I love the fact that I don't know what kind of dialogue you would have between Jesus and her at this time that couldn't wouldn't end up being kind of corny and hokey. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. You know, so yeah. the fact that this is internalized and happens like that feels. Yeah so much more real as to what what mm-hmm. would what would actually occur and keeps it out of the realm of you know uh what could turn into something that felt more uh less authentic yeah. you know than that yeah. if it it does it feels very authentic i feel i think that's really interesting your thoughts on how these things do happen quickly um and how these kind of realizations can turn almost beyond our thought, mm-hmm. at least beyond the language of our thoughts. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, we don't necessarily have words for these things, but there are there is a there is a turning there. I love her agency throughout. I mean, really, um, that uh, um, almost to the point where I wonder at the end, what does she have to be forgiven for? Yeah. Yeah. And and it's kind of interesting. So doing the work that I do, right? Um, it's this it's this interesting mix of uh I I see a lot of kids who have very difficult histories that include abuse of multiple kinds, right? Um, and when I was on the adult side of things, I saw the adults uh, who had had a lot of abuse growing up. Um, and then, you know, I see these kids as teenagers and they're kind of doing all of these things that somebody is labeling as problems, right? But then I think there's a lot of study and understanding that a lot of it stems from this abuse that they experienced, right? It's kind yeah. of a reaction to, and it, and it doesn't mean, 
Um, like to today, I was at one of the juvenile justice centers, you know, um, and it doesn't mean that these young people have not actually done something that, you know, is criminal, right? right. And, and yeah. But at the same time, when you kind of hear the story and you start knowing the background, in some ways, it's like, well, there are a lot of reasons. There are a lot of reasons hmm. why this child this teenager was kind of set up for this to be the particular path that they took at this point right yeah um and i mean and the hope is that with some of these interventions their life will be different or changed in some way for the better going forward but yeah i mean do we know i don't know if we know really I mean, to your thing, does she really have anything to be forgiven for? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like, well, maybe she is getting by, like, like getting by the best way she knows how and with the tools that have been given to her to yeah. get by on. And I guess the, the, the other point about that, when you said that, we use the term resiliency a mm. lot. Um, yeah. just in work. I'm sure you've heard it yeah. <laughs> before. Yeah. And the other thing that's amazing about the kids, the teenagers, even the adults that we see, you know, I kind of look at them and I'm like, you've made it this far. Like you are still alive. You still somehow managed to like have clothing and food and get by yeah. You know, and just to have survived that hmm. is amazing because a lot of people, uh, yeah, I mean. Yeah. Well, for you even to still be here and be willing to, like, try to get help, to, to try to make a change, to you know, not have just thrown up your hands and yeah. yeah. Hmm. Yeah. As we, as we think about, um, the woman in the story, uh, it does seem like she's kind of, in some ways she's thrown up her hands, at least mm -hmm. on God. Mm -hmm. And it feels like rightly so mm -hmm. because of what she's, what she's experienced. Mm -hmm. Um, are there any like spiritual experiences of your own that you drew on for this, or is this like you know? Um, so, I would say I feel like I've had multiple moments where things kind of happen, and I'm just like, whoa, you know. And mm. uh, they've been at various times and various. Um, if, you know, dealing with various things, whether it's what I needed to do next or how I was inter interacting with other people or uh, just kind of experiencing God uh, in, in a place. Um, I realized, too, in kind of 
writing this that uh, there have been many stories just because of our writing group and what I've shared and things like that that talk about kind of an opening in the soul, kind of this, mm. this space that kind of opens up in these very... Um, the, the term is, is, you know, it's, they're kind of revelatory moments, right? And, yeah. and the space just kind of opens up inside a person. And I, and I think maybe that comes from a personal experience. Yes. But, but it also, I think I'm, I've been curious about the idea, you know, when Christ says the kingdom of God is within you. Hmm. Um, and I'm like, wow, how much space do we have to consider being within us for it to encompass the entirety of the kingdom of God, right? Mm, yeah. And if you think of it as like space, right? Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> Which you may or may not, yeah. um, you know. Uh, but um, But just that sense of, of how wide and large and high and deep um, the kind of intangible part of ourselves mm. is. And I think I've definitely had, um, I've had that experience of being broken open and just feeling like there was kind of this depth that I didn't even know existed but yet I had a very strong sense of, of God's peace there. Um, and I think it's kind of funny because it was like, it was when I was in college, we were at one of those college retreats. It was this, uh, and I was at, in the Baptist student union at the yeah. time. Right. So <laughs> it was one of those, you know, how like, it seems like there are a lot of people in Southern Baptist life cause it was Southern Baptist, you know, connected, um, that you know, you have these singers and performers and they kind of go around to yeah, different yeah, places yeah. and they do the conferences and stuff like that. So this guy, he was um, uh, a puppeteer, right? He had a puppet and then he played the piano. <laughs> yeah. I was not expecting puppeteer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, but he did this huge thing on Corinthians 13 and... Um, and uh, he said, uh, he, was, he was like, because, and then he'd have the puppet say, if you don't have love, you don't got nothing, or you, you ain't got nothing, or something. I mean, it wasn't very grammatically correct. But they were just going back and forth kind of through First Corinthians. And um, I think I looked back at some person who was in my college group at that time, that I did not have a lot of high regard for just because of certain interactions with him and one of my very close friends. And, um, and that whole idea of it's your voice, but it's God's voice, but it's whatever. And mm -hmm. I looked back and what's, what went off inside my head was you have no idea how to love. Mm. And and then it was just over for me at that point. <laughs> like, um, I was like, I was like, I just started, I think I probably just started crying. I can't even remember. I remember there were a lot of tears yeah. that, that weekend. Yeah. Um, but, um, and, and I, the way I described how it felt 
inside of myself was like uh, I grew up watching my dad take chunks of wood and he would break them over his knee and just Mm. splinter them kind of break them in half and they would be splintered and then he'd toss them into the fire you know to kind of burn and I kind of said I felt like God kind of took me and broke me in that kind of way Mm. it just felt very um uneven splintery or what have you but in the midst of feeling that deep brokenness, um, there was there was a deep peace there too. And like I said, it was kind of an, an expansion mm. of myself, like interiorly, like realizing yeah. that there was more there. Um, <laughs> and this this is also may sound a little too like, woo, but you know, call me, call me whatever. Um, and then like a couple of days later, you know, I like was just tearful all weekend and I had this sense inside of me of being so broken, like that, you know, I just kind of been, I gotten the throw down, so to speak. And, um, And then what came next was just this overflowing, like there was no way that I could feel anything negative about anyone. Like it was all I've known to describe it as was having this sense of God's love flowing through me in a way that, you know, I experienced it for like all of a day, you know, right, yeah, <laughs> it wasn't yeah, like, yeah. it wasn't like a super, you know, and I've carried it on. It's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> but, but for that short period of time, I don't really like attempting to describe it is very difficult, but it was, it was literally like, to use the biblical term, uh, the 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 river of life kind of flowing through, mm. you know, yeah, and and that it was so like I saw I saw that guy that you know I had been just not happy with and hold held in very low regard the several days before, right? Yeah, and I saw him, and like all of that was just gone. And so since that time, a lot of my prayer has been, and and in sometimes more than others, like when Paul writes about the height, the depth, the length, the, the, mm. the breadth of Christ's love and like experiencing it and knowing it and kind of living in it, um, that I would kind of grow into that day's experience of it to where that was more of just who I mm. was in general instead of kind of a special dispensation I yeah. guess, <laughs> for that period of time um, but I mean it was it kind of it kind of freaked me out and then it was also really cool and then it yeah. was also um, d- difficult to explain and yeah even, like as I'm saying it to you I feel like it Sounds a little. 
you know, off. That's that's but, the point of it. Isn't that the, I mean, spiritual experiences are things that we're not going to be able to quantify or explain. I know, I know, I know. But it's definitely one of those things that were was just so just in the moment happened right there. And then for the next few days kind of evolved and changed and evolved and changed. And, you know, and then it was, it was kind of done, yeah. you know, and I was kind of not the same, but yes, I was the same. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it, it definitely changed me. That feels, that feels familiar and rings of truth in the sense of how those things tend to happen. Mm-hmm. I really um, am encouraged to hear how you carry that with you. Um, at least what it sounds like to, uh, can you explain, let me, let me see if I can explain what I'm getting at and then maybe you can explain to me how you, how you carry it with you. Yeah. Like, um, I think for me growing up, you know, I got, you know, more conservative background was, you know, you're supposed to have this kind of experience with God and then you're changed forever and you're always the same and, you know, mm-hmm. going forward. But it never seemed to happen that way for me. And I spent so long feeling guilty and upset about, yeah. like, why did these things not stick and last and why do I seem to be so, you know, kind of mm-hmm. up and down? But the experience that you share feels true to life mm-hmm. to to me. Not that I've had that same experience, mm-hmm. but but you'll ha- the spiritual experiences happen. There is a change, and you are the same and yet different. So, mm-hmm. how do you carry that so gracefully along with you? Or does that? Um, sometimes I don't carry it gracefully at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, but. I would say that it's it's just become a journey of trying to understand what it actually means to love and to know God's love and to um, believe it. Hmm. Um, believe it for myself, believe it for other people. Um, and... You know, when I find myself like super frustrated with people (laughs) or super frustrated with situations, to be able to remind myself that, you know, like, yes, God actually still does love X, you know, situation, uh, place, person, you know. no matter what my feelings are of that. And, and I, I do sometimes remind myself of that experience that Mm. just kind of overflowing. Like it was like, I couldn't have even wanted to dislike something that day. You know, I'd like, I, it was like, I had absolutely no power to have any kind of negative outlook, negative feeling, negative. It was just there, there is love period. Mm. And it's huge and it's overpowering and it's overflowing and it's not going anywhere and it's for everybody. 
And, um, and so to remind myself of that mm. when I'm not feeling any love right. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and maybe like disgust or frustration or um, righteous indignation, right? Yeah. Uh, that something's happening the way that it is. I, I kind of move between the poles of, I feel like I've, I, I, I come from a very um, experiential, uh, you know, spiritual background of valuing, you know, ecstatic experience mm-hmm. and, you know, uh, with, with God and have moved to a more intellectual um, appreciation and I, I feel like your story pulls both of these kinds of sides together. So we have this intellectual um, exploration of what's happening, but still there's this this mystical experience that is that is just woven in with that too. So these there's harmony in there, and maybe that's what I'm feeling from your story and your experience, and I think that's a beautiful thing, and a hard thing to be. So it's woven so nicely that you can't tease out. This is the intellectual side. This is the mystical side. This is, and but, but there's a there's just a beauty in that that's able to embrace uh, the spirituality and not try to make it something it's not. Mm-hmm. And I love that the story itself is this journey. Mm-hmm. You know. That, that we take into account what has happened before and then we're led to a place where we're not sure what will happen next, but there has been, this has been a pivotal point mm-hmm. in her life and existence. Mm-hmm. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit about, about you, who you are, okay. and what you do. Okay. You know? Yeah. Um, so currently... I am doing child and adolescent psychiatry. I'm still in my training. So uh, before I did the doctoring things, even though I I would occasionally work with uh, students who were getting their medical doctorates or what have you, um, I never actually understood the process. So uh, you go to medical school for four years um, on most everybody does that some programs are changing that around a little bit but you go to medical school for four years you get your medical do- doctorate and then after those four years you have to do a certain number of other years in training and so that's when your first year everybody's considered an intern uh, subsequent years, you're a resident, and then if you finish a residency training and you go on for further uh, training, you're considered a fellow. I'm like, yeah, I, I'm a child and adolescent uh, psychiatry uh, uh, psychiatrist in training, so that's what that's what that means. Um, and I'm technically like, had I. F- finished my full adult psychiatry thing, I would be a fellow, but I'm not because I didn't technically finish my adult yet. Like I have to go back and finish my adult after I do my child training. So I'm still a resident. Um, Yeah. So, so you're also uh, a Presbyterian minister or ordained Ordained, Presbyterian minister as well. And so, and, and you still, 
uh, well, you pre you've preached here at Central, and you yes. also preach at Hunter Memorial. Is that correct? It, it, well, it's Hunter Press, and Hunter then Press. Um, I'll, I've preached at some other Presbyterian churches yeah. in, in Kentucky. So, yeah. Yeah. So you've done that. What are what are the other things? Because I know every time we talk, I forget one of one of the one of the the things that you've done. I've done a little bit of everything because I did communications with a minor in English and Russian when I was an undergraduate, right? Right. And then what can you do with a communication degree? And it was in speech comm, right? Organizational right. communication. So I had no chance of ever actually getting a job with that. So um, I did like temp work yeah and i you know i so i sat at desk and made copies and yeah things like that and i did it for like frito-lay i did it for this tire company and i ended up getting to go to hawaii because the tire company's owner the main work was in uh hawaii um the name of the company is just kind of funny. Lex Brody's Fast Gas. <laughs> so, that, that was that uh, that job. Um, and so that led me, because of my work with the um, Baptist Campus Ministries, I kind of was like, well, I think I'd like to do ministry, you know, kind of yeah. thing, but still kind of, well, not kind of... My my grandmother, whereas my grandfather had a much more egalitarian view of like who could do ministry, my grandmother very much felt like any woman should be under a man and should never preach and never be ordained and those kind of things. Yeah. And she outlived him. So <laughs> that was that was kind of the presence in my life, uh, mm. growing up, kind of the the religious type of, you know, expectation, I guess. And so I was like, well, what am I going to do? Um, I feel like I should do ministry, but what kind of ministry should I do? So I went to seminary and um, got an MDiv. And during that time, I spent a year overseas in Ukraine uh, doing um, teaching English as a second language and working with the church. And then when I was leaving Ukraine, I was like, well, I still want to do ministry, but I'm not attached and I'm not going to be attached, you know, because there was very much this idea that, oh yeah, women can do ministry, but they need to do it with a man so that they have somebody in authority who can be over them. And so I was like, yeah, I'm not attached to anybody, but I still kind of feel like I want to be doing ministry. Yeah. So maybe I need to move out of this particular type of Presbyterianism and kind of move somewhere else. So when I did that, I moved into the USA uh, part of things. And in doing that, um, they wanted me just to kind of get connected into the, U the life of the USA church, which in part meant for me uh, to go to a PCUSA seminary. Mm. I was just like, do I have to get another MDiv or can I get a whatever, you know? Yeah. So I got a THM. And then there were some other kind of hoops I had to go through. So that included working with the Presbyterian Church, which I did out in Berkeley, California. And I worked with college students again then. Yeah. And then um, you were expected to do a clinical pastoral education, which is when I moved back and moved to Memphis. And um, 
I did it for a year instead of like just the quarter because they would pay you, right? And uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> and you'd have insurance and these kinds of things. Which yeah. by that time, I realized I actually needed. Like most of the time, growing up, I was like, I don't need to have insurance. Exactly. I don't yeah. need. You know, yeah. Yeah. I'm just I'm gonna live. You know, it's gonna be great. So, um, and then that's when I met Gino, and then Gino and I got married, and we, um, and I really enjoyed chaplaincy and. It was it was a good thing, and I really enjoyed hospice chaplaincy even more so than kind of the normal chaplaincy stuff. So I I had had you know a great time in my twenties and traveling around and doing different things, and in my early thirties I end up in Memphis and get married and kind of I'm like okay we'll settle down and yeah. kind of hang out and see what happens. And I had a breast cancer scare, so oh, I was I guess fairly young but my doctor was just like you should get a screen you know and just make sure and these kind of things and yeah. so then they were like oh well that doesn't look very good and let's do a biopsy and mm. see what it was and then my primary doctor was like I don't like the way that looks and I want you to be followed by an oncologist and so an oncologist followed me for a couple of years and by that time, I had worked in hospice care long enough that I had talked to a lot of people about how things in life change mm. uh, pretty suddenly. And, um, you know, met a lot of people who just had these regrets about, oh, I waited to do this or I would have loved to have done that. And I was planning on doing it. And then X yeah. happened and you know now I'm in hospice care and and I never had the opportunity to do that yeah. so um, maybe I was being a little more melodramatic than I needed to be but I d but I was like okay so what if this actually turned out to be something and what if if there was anything like I've had a great life but what would I want to do that I haven't done and the obvious answer was medical school. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that was like, you know, and talk about bucket lists. So, um, so. Some people talk about going to the beach or doing something like that, you know, seeing, yeah. you know, Antarctica. I don't know. Yeah. Med yeah. school. Medical school. And so, um, so, you know, Gino came home or I came home, you know, we went after work one day and I said, I was like, so, honey, I, I think I'm going to try to go to medical school. And he was like, okay. <laughs> you know, his, his voice only faltered a little bit. Um, and so I, I had to go back and do all the maths and sciences and yeah. applied and actually got into medical school. And, and here I am. Yeah. Wow. Like I said. Yeah. Well, that is, that is a beautiful journey. You know, <laughs> I love hearing that too. You know, there wasn't just one thing necessarily, or, or there maybe there was one thing, but it, it came back around later. You know, mm -hmm. and uh, and you've you've had a, a wealth of experiences. My goodness, and we didn't even talk about the uh, the Yugoslavian street children. <laughs> <laughs> Another podcast. Though. Yeah, I think another we may have podcast. to wait for another podcast to hear that story. That could be yeah. the teaser for the next yeah, one. Yeah, that's right. So, 
So the one thing we hadn't talked about yet is your writing and kind of how that oh, comes yeah. into play and how do you work that into medical school and all these other experiences? So um, my sister bought a Garfield journal for me when I was 10. So this is also something that happened as when I was 10 years right. old. Um, and I began to be an avid journal writer from that time forward. Like, I don't know if my sister gave it to me and then I was like, oh my gosh, I have to write in this. Or if I somehow kind of enjoyed it, right. you know, so I just continued. But for whatever reason, I did. Um and I've been journaling ever since. So I've been journaling for a really long time now. And the, uh, the writing bit, I do remember I had one of those weird experiences. That, well, obviously I've had weird experiences, right? <laughs> but um, another weird experience where um, I was asleep one night and I had this dream where I was writing and I was writing this stuff that I thought was really cool. And so I woke up from the dream and started writing down all this stuff oh, wow. that I was dreaming, you know, like yeah. the story that I was dreaming or the poem that I was dreaming or whatever. And so since that time, and that was like when I was a teenager, like early yeah. teens, like 12, 13, something like that. And so since that time, I have done my own kind of creative writing that just helped me process through things or kind of gave voice to stuff that I could I could not or did not feel comfortable voicing elsewhere right um and so I so I have I have a whole bunch of mishmash of things everywhere in different little books and scribbles and in different uh, places but um yeah, and I guess uh, in divinity school, of course, I mean, I've always written a lot of papers and, and things like that, uh, just with my majors and, um, and being in a higher level education. I mean, you usually have to write a lot, right? Yeah. But um, I began doing more kind of storytelling as I began to preach, like that felt more natural to me mm. than trying to be uh, very exegetical about things. Um, yeah, it, it just felt more natural to me. I mean, my preaching prof or one of my preaching professors, he definitely, he, he kept on saying, you need to actually do an exegetical sermon here. <laughs> I'm like, but I don't want to, I don't want to. Um, and so I, I did a lot more just kind of storytelling. Yeah. That seemed, like I said, just seemed more natural to me. Did you discover that on your own, or did you have some uh, other inspirations for that more narrative style? I'm trying to... I probably... It was probably Barbara Brown Taylor. Mm. Um, she doesn't do a lot of narration necessarily, but yet she can use story or she'll talk about there are certain passages she does a lot more storytelling around the passage right um and i had uh one of the older women who was in divinity school with me who was part of a kind of cooperative baptist church in memphis turns out like we ran into each other later when i oh, wow. came back yeah. there um 
and it was the church that Gina was a part of. So that was kind of fun, you know, uh, kind of circling back around. But um, she bought the book for me, but she bought it. You know, she actually did buy it for me as a, she said, I think she said, your preaching kind of reminds me a little bit of Barbara Brown Taylor, and you might find her a good kind of mentor yeah. for like thinking about biblical texts and how you uh, yeah. preach them and well, that's write awesome. them. I think yeah. that's, I think that's high compliments, good. you know, to be, yeah, 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 reminding someone of. Barbara Brown Taylor. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. Or yeah. you know, she just or she just saw that I kind of like to tell stories, yeah. and she was like, "You really need to do it better." But <laughs> <laughs> I don't I'm, think that's I'm, it. I'm gonna I'm gonna give somebody to you who can help you do it a little bit better. Um, you know, mentor yeah. you in, into it some more. And so since that time, I've read I've read a lot of Barbara Brown Taylor, um, and and I really appreciate her her writing style and mm. kind of how she thinks about things and, and yeah. kind of comes around to things. Um, mm. But yeah, and then in medical school, I actually took a narrative medicine course for a month. Oh, wow. Where yeah. um, I went down into Knoxville, Tennessee, where they had uh, in their medical library, they had a poet in residence who was also like a librarian. And then there was a hemoc doctor who does uh, writing kind of on the side. He'll write stories and poetry and things like yeah. that. And so their narrative medicine series was, or kind of month-long rotation, was very much about you being with him as he was seeing patients. And, of course, you're a medical student, so you kind of, there's the medicine part. But he's like, he's like, what I really want you to do is kind of just observe, be in there with the interaction, um, and think about not so much how doctors are the major players in the patient's life, but how really we're kind of minor players and the patient's life mm. of, you know, their whole story and, and what has happened like around them and them through them, you know, these yeah. kind of things. And so, um, from that, I, I wrote a whole bunch of poetry and a couple of kind of short essays. And I actually did a, they did, um, literary grand rounds there. And so I, I did an evening of reading of my kind of work that, that I had done awesome. during that time. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. So, um, and I've done a little bit of that since. Um, yeah. I, I find that sometimes I'm just so into what I have to be doing to kind of get all the documentation done and stuff yeah. that I, I'm not stepping out as often to kind of hear the phrases or hear the things that can then mm. be um, kind of the creative whispers, so to speak. Uh, that come in those kind of interactions, um, mm. even though there's been there's been once or twice. Mm. Um, That's a sounds like a just a, a beautifully empathetic way to attend to you know medical mm -hmm. care and care of mm -hmm. uh, of of human beings mm -hmm. um, more than just the the symptoms that are there, but caring for that for that person. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah. That's gorgeous. Yeah. Well, I tell you, I appreciate you doing this, and I love the story. And I don't know if if I did it any justice with my questions, but um, 
uh, it was, uh, it's a gorgeous piece and so much depth and richness to it as well. It was, it was really inspiring to go and to reimagine some, some scripture. Yeah, <laughs> we go, yeah. write our own scripture. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wait, 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 wait. Wait, wait, wait. Maybe not. Maybe not. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much, Kate. Yeah, thank you, Aaron. It's been good to be here. Yeah. Thanks for listening to this episode of Wayfair. And thanks to Kara Kilpatrick for sharing her writing with us. Wayfarer is a production of Central Baptist Church in Lexington, Kentucky, a loving and progressive gathering of Christians. You can find out more about us at LexCentral.com. I'm Aaron Austin, and I'll see you next week for another step along the journey.